What a delight to have all of you here. The singing, just the, the robust, full-hearted singing um, is something that I will never take for granted again. The fullness, the richness of being together as God's people is really a moving thing. It's a great blessing, and it really is a privilege to have all of you back with us this morning in one service. Well, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul in Acts and various of Paul's letters to his churches. Today we find ourselves with Paul at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Remember, beloved, remember, these are the very written words of God, words that were written for you and written for me. Luke writes in the book of Acts, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a number of years ago, I got a call from a former student that I had ministered to way back in my youth ministry days um, in the early 90s. And this young lady happened to be in Dallas uh, visiting a college roommate, roommate, and she said that she would like to meet. And there were some things that she wanted to discuss. And so we met, and she told me that she had met someone, that there was a significant young man in her life, and that they were getting serious, and it looked like things were moving along toward marriage. Um, she also indicated that he's not a believer, and she wanted to talk about that. Um, she had taken a job that literally took her all over the world. She worked for a particular professional sport, and that professional sport followed the sun, and so she just traveled in her role with that, with that organization all over the world. And she had met this young man, I think, in France or Belgium or somewhere like that. He had not been raised knowing the gospel, was not a confessing Christian, did not believe, and she wanted to talk about that. But then she said, the real issue is this. She said, um, in the course of my travel, you know, all over the world, I have met so many wonderful non-Christians. I have met so many people who believe so many other things, and I count them as friends. And she said, you know, I'm starting to question whether or not Christianity is actually true. You know, I grew up in kind of this little bubble where everyone around me was born and raised and went to church, and now I'm meeting people from all over the world who don't share that conviction. And she said, how is it that we think that we're right and that they're not? Isn't that maybe arrogant of us to feel like we've got the corner on the market of truth and all these wonderful people, my new friends, are they lost? How do we know? that we're right, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How do we really know that? And I can't remember exactly all that we said and all that we discussed. Um, I don't think that all her questions or concerns were answered or addressed. And she went on to marry that young man and is continuing um, working in Europe. But um, I think the passage that we're looking at this morning shed some light and offers some answers, brings clarity to some of these questions that she has. Because if you're like me, you've asked some of those very same questions as you've grown and matured, maybe as you meet a wonderful neighbor who isn't a Christian, or maybe a family member who doesn't profess faith in the Lord Jesus. What do we do with this? Do we really think that Christianity is right? 
And if we think that, and if we believe that, why do we do so? Paul was faced with a very similar situation in Acts chapter 17. As he traveled to what was probably still at that time the intellectual, philosophical, and cultural capital of the world. Maybe the most cultural, philosophical city the world had ever seen. Talking to some of the most intelligent people of his day. He had to grapple with those very same questions that my friend Catherine was struggling with. Let's see what he had to say how he responded, and what he emphasized. But first, a little historical context. We are now in the middle of the second missionary journey of Paul. So remember in Acts 1, um, and at the end of Matthew, Jesus, in a sense, gives the Great Commission. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so as of this day, Paul is is in what he would have thought as the uttermost parts of the earth, okay? And we're a church plant. Well, the enterprise of church planting began with Paul's missionary journeys. His first missionary journey was what we think of as like modern-day Turkey. His second missionary journey, he checked on those churches, and then he went farther west. And if you remember the past few weeks, he went to Philippi, and then he went to... Um, Thessalonica, and then he went to Berea, okay, and then ultimately today he finds himself in Athens. Now, Paul was not in Athens by himself, okay? He wasn't there by him, or he was by himself, I'm sorry, he was by himself, but it wasn't by choice. So when Paul went to Philippi, things went okay until Paul performed a particular exorcism that got him in big trouble with local authorities. Then he went to Thessalonica, and things started to go well in Thessalonica, and then local Jews ran him out of town. And then Paul went to Berea, and things were going okay until the local Jews from Thessalonica followed him to Berea and threatened him, and things got so bad and so troublesome for Paul that the brothers in Berea they put Paul in a boat by himself and sent him south. They wanted to get him as far away from Macedonia as was humanly possible. The text indicates that the boat driver took him as far as Athens. But he was by himself. He was not with Silas or Timothy because he had to leave in a rush. And so he's there by himself. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The Apostle Paul, by himself, in one of the most significant cities in the history of the world, walking around, absorbing it, taking it all in. Okay, let's see what the text has to say. Verses 16 and 17, when he gets there and he kind of explores the city, he engages in his typical pattern. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for Silas, He's waiting for Timothy. Okay, they didn't have a chance to join him when he boarded the ship and headed south. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I mean, it was so full, there was such a proliferation of idols that they even dedicated an altar to the unknown God. 
You know, they were covering their bases, okay? If you can think of it, they worshipped it. The text indicates, Luke tells us, that Paul's spirit was provoked. I think that means he was grieved. I think he was distressed. I think he was heartbroken over what he saw, the irony of the religiosity of this people, this people that was perhaps the most religious city you know, in the world, and yet they were more lost than anyone else. All this knowledge, and yet they were totally lost. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so what should we be imagining in our mind's eye? So we know like at the synagogue, it was a usual thing that if you were someone like Paul, you would be invited to speak at the synagogue. Okay, they would allow guest Jews or people that were perceived to be rabbis, they would allow them to read scripture and teach. And so Paul would do that typically until things got bad, until people kind of figured out he is teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and, you know, opposition could be organized and they would run him out of town. But usually he had a few weeks before that would happen. So he would reason in the synagogue. He would explain from the Old Testament how Jesus is the Christ. But he also did that here in the marketplace. That's not something he had ever done before. Okay, what should we imagine was going on or what this marketplace looked like? Think of like a huge open-air farmer's market, okay, but with a bit of a, a philosophical component. Okay, at these, at these marketplaces in Athens, they would have sold food and different kinds of wares and goods and services would be exchanged. But because of their cultural diversity, because of their love for all of these ideas and new philosophical observations, they would have areas where people would debate and they would exchange ideas. It was tailor-made for Paul. So not only had gone, God gone before Paul in the Jewish dispersion, having all these synagogues ready to go for him to preach it, now we have this, this Greek marketplace where it would not have been odd or unusual to present new ideas. Don't think of like how we respond to a street preacher. You know, sometimes if you think of like a, maybe a street preacher on a street corner or someone standing up in the square at the college campus, maybe yelling at people, okay, that's not what Paul was doing. This was an accepted part of their culture for someone to come and engage with them regarding these ideas. And so this is what Paul does, and it's very interesting. Look at verse 21. This is the way that their culture operated. Verse 21 said, all the Athenians and the foreigners, so people who, who moved there started to do the same thing. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So it would have been just as natural for Paul to speak at this marketplace that it would have been for him to speak at the local synagogue. And I think they just did not know what to do with him. You know, they, were, they had interacted with people like the Epicureans, um, 
and um, various stoical schools, but Paul was saying things and making claims that were rooted in history that they didn't know what to do with. And they were very curious. I mean, obviously some made fun of him, mocked him, rejected him, but he got enough of a hearing that people wanted to hear more. Look with me at verses 18 and following. So some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those were like major philosophical schools of the day and time, some of them also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So some people mocked him, rejected him, thought what he was saying was ridiculous. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Luke tells us. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In their defense, they had never heard anything like this before. Okay, they were just, they, they were used to debating philosophical things, various things like that. They, like this was, this would have been new, what Paul was preaching and communicating. That this, that this Jewish rabbi, that the Messiah of the Hebrew peoples was the son of God and the savior of the world. I, I, I cannot imagine how they would have responded to that. Clearly, they wanted to know more. They didn't just completely write him off as a crazy man. Let's look at what, he, at what he says or where they take him. Verse 19, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. That means the hill of Mars, the hill of Ares. Okay, that was both a place and it was also a council. And so in the city of Athens, you know, if you... Um, if you were making some kind of claim that they felt was significant enough or perhaps was controversial, okay, they would bring you to this place. I mean, you can look it up online. The ruins are still there of where the Areopagus is and what it looked like. It was a place and it was also a council. So the Jews had their council, right? Do you remember what the Jewish council was called that, that interrogated Jesus and interrogated his disciples. What was that council called? The Sanhedrin. Okay, well, the Greek kind of pagan version of the Sanhedrin, the Athenian version is the Areopagus. Okay, and you had civil magistrates on the Areopagus, and they would evaluate and consider the claims that someone made. They probably didn't have legal authority in the first century like they had before. Okay, but it was this august body that was there to hear and analyze and evaluate what Paul was saying. So there were probably people in the marketplace who said, we don't know how to respond to this guy. We can't answer him, but we know who can. So let's take him before the Areopagus. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Okay, and so Paul is happy to oblige. You know, it's like asking a minister, would you share the gospel with this person? Like, we're more than happy to do so, okay? Paul was made for this moment. Okay, and so he goes and stands before this incredible assembly. 
and gives a presentation of the gospel. I want you to notice what his ultimate focus is at the Areopagus. I would say it's the same as his focus in the marketplace. It's the same as was his focus in the synagogues. At the end of the day, what Paul emphasizes, okay, the foundation that he presents for Christianity is the same everywhere he goes. Let's see what it is. Verses 22 through 28. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens. Just imagine in your mind's eye the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone this far west. I mean, Paul is in Europe. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for he's going to quote uh, uh, ancient Greek poet Epimenides, in him we live and move and have our being. So he's finding some common ground, things that we can agree on. As even some of your own poets have said, he's going to quote someone else, for we are indeed his offspring. And so what Paul does is he keys off something. You know, coming across that altar dedicated to an unknown God gave Paul the angle that he was looking for. Whether you're preaching or writing an article, you know, you're trying to find an angle, you know, a way to present the text that will connect with people. Paul found his angle. And so he responds to this altar dedicated to an unknown God, and so he's pointing out the irony. You are one of the most religious groups of people I have ever seen. So religious, you cover all your bases, and you dedicate an altar to an unknown God. Well, what is unknown to you, I am here to declare. Amazing and ironic that they could be so religious and yet not know who the God of the world truly is. He introduces them to the God of Israel and he introduces them in the form of God. God's the creator. He's the creator and providential sustainer of the entire world. And his intent is to be known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why God created us. That's why he created us. That's why he provides for us. That's why he sustains us. It's God's goal, his desire to be known through the person of Jesus. He says, in the past, God overlooked some things. He didn't just smite you for being polytheistic. He was gracious and forbearing, 
But those days have passed now that the new covenant has come. And he declares that all people everywhere need to repent in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's saying that doesn't even make sense that you think God could be contained in these kinds of things. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. He was gracious. He didn't judge you on the spot. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance means turning away from your life of sin and your worship of idols toward the living God in Jesus Christ. Verse 31, why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he makes this claim. He makes a claim that would have been at the time perceived to be pretty outrageous. That a day of judgment is coming where God will judge the world in righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his son. Like that would have seemed like quite a claim. You know, as people say, outrageous claims require like outrageous evidence. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. What is Paul's proof that the claims he's making at the Areopagus are actually true? Like lots of these other philosophical schools, the claims that they might make, they weren't falsifiable. They just lived in the world of the theoretical. Paul's going to make a claim that's falsifiable. At the end of the day, according to Paul, why is Christianity true? Christianity is true is because of events that are rooted in space and time. Christianity is true because God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Like, look at the text. Verse 31, at the end, of this, you know, of the, the surety of the future judgment, of this, he, God, has given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. So it's not just that, you know, we're right, you know, and they're wrong. It's not, like, we don't believe this just because we were raised to believe this. You know, if I could talk to my friend Catherine again, you know, it's not that we're better than these wonderful people that she's meeting all over the world. It's because Jesus was raised from the dead, something that happened in space and time. You know, earlier in Acts 17, people acknowledged this Christianity thing, it has turned the world upside down. What we have in Acts 17, like this is just a summary that Luke has given us. This isn't every word that Paul spoke to the Areopagus. 
I would think that it would be likely that Paul would have shared his own testimony. How he went from someone who was advancing at a faster pace than all of his peers, it put him at a very prominent place in society, and that his goal was to persecute and end Christianity. That was his goal. He had Christians executed. And then all of a sudden, in his life, there's this 180, and Paul goes from being the persecutor and destroyer of the church to a man who was willing to subject himself to the worst forms of torture to proclaim that it's true. Like you saw Dave, he brought his little prop last week. Those of you who weren't there, he, he brought like a, a pole. What, what kind of pole did he call it? I called it a dowel, okay? So it was a, he was trying to demonstrate when Paul said he was beat with rods, you know, something that it would have looked like. What could make someone who had hated the church and tried to destroy the church risk his life to see it grow? We've said before he, he was stoned in Lystra and left for dead, and he continued. He wasn't just flogged. He was scourged, beat with rods. What? I mean, like, and, and, and Paul would have been in the position to know that it wasn't true if it wasn't true. Okay, like, Paul had been around Peter and John and James, the brother of Jesus. I was just reading the other day about a, you know, just uh, somebody else who had focused on Acts 17, another sermon, And the preacher talked about um, reading the book of James for the first time. And the preacher was talking about like internalizing that the book of James is written by the brother of Jesus. According to the Gospels, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him until after the resurrection. What would it take for James, the brother of Jesus to go from being a skeptic to worshiping him as God Almighty. If there's anyone who would have known it was a lie, it would have been James, the brother of Jesus. And yet we have Paul's conversion and testimony, Peter's conversion and change, James, the brother of Jesus. People could have gone to Jerusalem if they wanted after Paul preached these sermons to investigate the things that had happened 17 years before? Amazing. We believe it. Okay, we're Christians because we, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. You know, um, I wish I could say that all of Paul's... Um, Hearers were converted. In fact, the text indicates most were not. At the end of Acts 17, it only mentions two people by name. You know, Damaris and Dionysus. And, and, and he mentions there were some others. Most did not believe. Most did not believe the Lord Jesus. 
You have Jesus himself preaching and teaching and most of the Jews rejected him. And so what are we supposed to do? I mean, like, how, you know, when, when someone says, okay, I'm hearing you, what is your proof? Why do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? We can't go back in time, you know, and put like a little trail cam outside the tomb, okay, and pull out the card the next day and see was the stone rolled away or not. We, we can't do that. We can't interview Paul. We can't talk to Peter. We can't talk to James, the brother of Jesus, Okay, we can't do miracles like sometimes they could do. So what are we supposed to do when someone says, okay, why do you believe that? That's quite a claim to make. Why should I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? What kind of evidence do you have? What would you say? I do think what we've talked about, like, you know, the, the disciples. The disciples were in the position of knowing whether or not it was true. Okay, the disciples would not have done what they did if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. They would not have done it. Paul would not have done it. Okay, what did Paul do? He reasoned with them in the synagogues and in the marketplace and in the Areopagus. God would call on us as we have the opportunity to humbly, graciously, reason with people okay but we also have something at our disposal that's every bit as powerful as any miracle that the disciples ever did we have the love of God in Christ Jesus like C.S. Lewis said at the beginning that's the reason I quote uh, chose that little quote from C.S. Lewis Christians are different. Christians are different from the rest of the world. True, Jesus-loving Christians are being changed and shaped by the Holy Spirit in ways that are not true in the world. Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think that's even more true when Christians love non-Christians. You know, um, I'll, I'll just, I see Meredith Boyd over there. Meredith Boyd is one of the most encouraging people I have ever met. And she is a trainer for Camp Gladiator. She's got the spiritual gift of encouragement. But really what's coming out in Meredith is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so when Meredith Boyd sees someone who's maybe struggling or troubled or looks like they're going through a hard time, I can tell you Meredith Boyd will be engaging with that person. That's not something that happens in the world by and large. I'm not saying that that's going to convert all people. I'm just saying people notice the difference. They notice the love of God in Christ Jesus. They know that it's real. They can tell when the Lord's people really care about them and show graciousness and loving kindness to them. I would argue that's more powerful than any miracle we could conjure up. 
There's nothing that changes a life more than a person knowing they are loved and they are cared about. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in his people. I, I love that old adage that I, that I got back in my young life days um, that, are, that, that I think is just time-tested and true when it was commended in the context of young life, young life earn the right to be heard. You know, we should be a people that, you know, that as, as the Lord gives the opportunity, shares the gospel, but we should also be a people that earn the right to be heard, that truly love our neighbors, love the people we work with, love our family members, okay? We don't need to be like used car salesmen always trying to shove it down their throat. Love them. Show them the compassion of Jesus Christ. And if the Lord is working in their heart, they will ask, what is different about you? Why are you doing this? And you'll be in the marketplace, and you'll be at the Areopagus, and you can share the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you and praise you for who you are and all that you have done. Father, um, we thank you for this encouraging testimony of Paul's second missionary journey. Father, we pray that his emphasis would be our emphasis. At the end of the day, Father, we pray that we would be a people, as you give the opportunity, we pray that we would be a people that focus on the person and work, the life and death of the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be a people that would, that would commend the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us, you know, opportunities in our context like you gave to Paul. Father, give us opportunities where we could love our family members who don't know you in, in, in gracious and humble ways. Father, we pray that you would give us the opportunity to love our coworkers in gracious and humble ways. Father, give us opportunities to show your love and grace to non-Christians in our workplace. Help us um, to have opportunities to serve them. Help us to do that in our neighborhood. Father, help us to be so transformed by your love for us that we just can't help but be people and ambassadors of your love to a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.